A wind sprang high in the west like a wave of unreasonable happiness and tore eastward across England, trailing with it the frosty scent of forests and the cold intoxication of the sea. In a million holes and corners, it refreshed a man like a flagon and astonished him like a blow. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. On today's episode, we are discussing How the Great Wind Came to Beacon House, which is chapter one from Man Alive, our favorite Chesterton novel. We are so happy to have you joining us for this today. I think Grace and I are both brimming with excitement right now. Yes, very, very, very excited. Grace, what are you sipping on for this episode? I have tea. We're recording in the uh, late morning, I guess, my time. So I have some lemon ginger tea. Oh, yay. It's made another appearance in your life. Yes. I am also drinking tea. I'm having PG tips this morning made by the great Mr. David Bates. Ooh. And it's just so cozy to have a cup of tea in the morning. It's a Mm -hmm. nice, gentle way to start the day. So... It's been Christmas. Yes. It's been New Year's. Yes. How were your holidays? Did you get to see family? I did. It was a little bit split up. We thought my mom had COVID. Um, she turns out she didn't, praise God. But um, but we, she had to have several tests. And so we didn't get to see her for Christmas itself. So I was with my dad Aww. instead. And then um, oh, afterwards, good. yeah, afterwards we got to see her. So that was good. But um, that's great. Yeah. So it was a little bit of... Uh, disjointed unlike usual but I feel like that's just the hallmark of this year so (laughs) yeah I saw some pictures actually from your from you actually seeing your mom and your grandmother yeah and she is adorable (laughs) y'all your grandma is so darn cute I know she is really she looked very happy with all of you guys around her so she was she was she's so sweet yeah so I spent um the last week at her house the last I guess few days at her house and um every morning she you know kind of takes it slow and gets up and has her coffee and everything and so I would sit with her Um, my mom has been running all over the place trying to you know catch up on errands and things that she didn't get to do when she was in quarantine so um, yeah she uh, she was having to do things in the morning so I would sit with my grandmother and I was reading um, and I've been reading The Woman Who Was Chesterton by Brown oh my gosh I'm in love it is such a great book I would highly recommend it to everybody. Yes. And in fact, I would love to do some sort of bonus episode about that book. Just just that book, because it oh, she writes wonderfully and the way she pieces together their lives. But more from Francis's perspective is amazing. And so it reads like a story rather than biography. And I, I mean, biographies can be very dry and very difficult to get through. But she the way that she compiles the all of the information that she gathered about them it just reads so smoothly and it is chronological and so it's very easy to follow and you really get a feeling like you are experiencing their life with them you learn so many things about Chesterton through her 
perspective of Francis. Mm -hmm. So very great read. What were you going to say? I was just going to say like all of the letters and everything, just like her. um, I found it super fascinating, her conversations with Father O'Connor, who was, you know, Father Brown. And it was amazing how close the two of them were. I didn't realize that before that she was the one that was really keeping up the correspondence with him while yes. Gilbert was writing and doing other things. And yeah. um, that was that was just really cool to to read all those letters between them. And in the end, I, I still have two chapters to go, but I just got to the point where where Gilbert dies. And oh. I was just like, I felt like I wanted to weep. <laughs> Oh. When he got to that point because it was just so and like hearing it from you know her perspective on all the letters that were written to her afterwards and everything it was just so touching and moving and they were such an inspiration to me in so many ways and that just that book solidified it even more you know and those two so. were so united in life that right. I think his death was very hard on her I mean mm-hmm. she she barely lived longer than he did she passed away not too long after I think only two years right. Um, she said she was having all sorts of masses said for the repose of his soul, but really it was more for the repose of her own. Oh. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> That's I mean, so, like beautiful and heartbreaking. <laughs> I said it before in our Christmas episode. I mean, I, this is one of the greatest couples I think I've ever oh, had certainly. the privilege of getting to know through reading. I look up to them a lot. They yeah. They just spent their entire lives sacrificing for each other, loving each other so well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just love it. I love when he would apologize to her so he would write her a poem if Mm -hmm. something happened between (laughs) the two of them. I'm like, I want to take that up in my marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that book really, it brought me to a greater love of Chesterton for Mm -hmm. sure. Of the two of them. Right. And, you know, as Grace talked about, I think in our intro episode, how our goal for this podcast is to bring Chesterton to more people mm-hmm. and to introduce more people to this great author that we love. That was what Frances did. Mm-hmm. And she, like, you know, while that she was, was her alive, life's work, really, it was. And I think actually in the, in the book today, I wrote a little note for us to discuss um, what womanhood Mm. and femininity was for Chesterton and for Francis like how did they understand it so that theme is going to come up today um, in the story which is going to be very fun to talk about yes all right all right great well let's jump right into it okay so here's the summary On an otherwise bleak day in London, a sudden refreshing evening wind springs up and blows through all the city, stealing papers and hats and blowing people around. A boarding house called Beacon House is the focus in the midst of all this activity. There are a few young, mildly successful yet generally bored tenants standing about listlessly in the garden when the wind almost knocks them off their feet. Suddenly, a large man dressed in a green suit comes bounding over the garden wall in pursuit of his white Panama hat. He laughs, shouts random phrases, runs, tumbles, climbs trees, and makes grand symbolic gestures in order to capture his hat to the astonishment of the onlookers. One of the men in the garden soon realizes who he is, an old college friend of his, Smith, who is said to have gone mad at Oxford and hasn't been heard of since. The group stands in wonder as to what will happen next. Fantastic. Thank you, Grace. So this story is 
so quotable and the lines are written so beautifully. He uses very descriptive language in this story, which doesn't always come through in some of his other works. Mm -hmm. I think that this is one of his most descriptive books. He uses like lots of colorful language and he really paints a picture for us here. And I think the two things that are going to be the most important for us to focus on in this first chapter are the characters and the descriptions of the characters and then the the setting. Yes. Um, and this anthropomorphic wind <laughs> that makes its presence known throughout this whole chapter. From the beginning of the, the chapter, Chesterton really makes it clear that the wind is alive and it's mm-hmm. sweeping through London and sweeping through this garden. And I adored some of the descriptions that he gave at the beginning of the chapter, saying what the wind was capable of doing and talking about it as if it's this joyful thing that that truly has a nature. So at the beginning, he references a boy reading Treasure Island and then the candle by which he's reading is blown out by the wind. And so the story is made real to him Mm -hmm. uh, because if you've ever read Treasure Island, which I reread as an adult last year, I need to reread it. It is terrifying. It is (laughs) so scary. I mean, there's there's no holding back in that book. It's not a children's book. I don't think I think it's very scary. Um, but anyway, I love that. And then um, and then he talks about a woman looking at laundry on the line and how the, the laundry looks lifeless. And then the wind sweeps through it and there are all of a sudden five little imps, you know, jumping on the line, his, her five children. This really brought to mind for me um, a poem by Rich, Richard Wilbur. Oh, who he was my poet that I studied in college. Oh, interesting. Um, he actually lived until 2017. Um, he was a fantastic man, not a Catholic, but a Christian, wrote poetry on all sorts of things, but he loved writing about human experiences and nature. And so one of his poems is called Love Calls Us to the Things of This World. And he talks about this very same idea of a person looking at laundry on the line or huh laundry being on the line and it being lifeless and then wind being swept into it and bringing it to life and reminding us of really higher things of heaven because uh, I'll read you a line uh, from the poem it says and spirited from sleep the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple at false dawn outside the open window the morning air is awash with angels some are in bed sheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly there they are. Hmm. And so, and he talks about them rising in halcyon feeling and it's like all these garments have come to life as the wind has come into them. It opens up our eyes to the supernatural, the angels around us. And I, so anyway, I really, yeah, I love that imagery. That's great. Have you ever seen uh, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks? The old Disney movie from the 70s. <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh my gosh, it's one of my favorites. But it, in that they, it's during World War II in England and they basically bring these through magic or whatever. They bring these old medieval and like, um, how do you say, like knights and stuff like that, all the armor oh. and all of the kind of pageantry and like things that people would wear and whatever. They're all in these British museums. 
they bring them to life in order to ward off a Nazi invasion of like this small town on the coast or whatever. Oh, dear. <laughs> I know, right? That's so funny. <laughs> and so anyways, it just reminds me of that, that because you- all of their yeah. clothes like come to life and start dancing around and How then like funny. start fighting off the Nazis. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is yeah, but so just, great. Just the whimsy of of that and the whimsy of this, the descriptions in this chapter and in this whole book, really, but in this chapter specifically, yeah. it's just so alive, like you yes. were saying. Yeah, that wind, the wind is just bringing life to everything that it comes into contact with. And, and he kind of references a few paragraphs later, that presence of angels, because he talks about uh, the wind basically clashing around a clergyman walking like the salutation of seraphic wind wings <laughs> excuse me and um i love that i love that so much it just makes it seem like anything is possible and he's really setting the scene for this character this wind coming in and changing everything and it, it it's a foreshadowing of what's to come that right. there's something very exciting and very alive about to bound into our lives in this in this book yeah i love that thinking of the wind as a character um and i like how he describes it um as he he has this long description of the wind in the first Mm -hmm. um several paragraphs and then ends it with for this was the good wind that blows nobody harm so it's setting it up to be this happy thing you know it's not a bad thing or a scary thing but a happy thing even though it's knocking people down and (laughs) taking their hats from them and things. yeah absolutely So we end up at Beacon House, uh, which is in London, and it's a boarding house. I'm not 100% sure, but he lived with Francis in Beaconsfield. And so Mm -hmm. I think there may be, you know, I was thinking that too, some borrowing uh, from from their hometown. Um, It's the description is funny because it says it's a boarding house with young but listless folks. So it seems like a place where people aren't fully living their lives they aren't passionate about anything they're just sort of existing mm-hmm. um he even calls them inmates did you yes. notice that yes <laughs> five inmates, inmates. consolately about the garden when a great gale broke at the base of the terminal tower behind them as the sea bursts against the base of an outstanding cliff i love that image that's yes. so beautiful and we're going to be quoting a lot in this episode because there are so many lines that are just so worth repeating. Grace, what was your impression of the character descriptions in this? Oh uh, my gosh, it was so colorful. There's just, there's so many different kind of uh, stereotypes I felt like, but yet not in a flat way. You know, they definitely were very lively, the, um, the descriptions of the characters yeah, I think they were all, they all had like sort of a, some sort of personality that people could relate to more one than others yes. or something. And all of them are going to be kind of touched by this wind and touched by this person who comes into their lives like in different ways. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that's really cool that all of us kind of have something that we're going to be, we're going to experience the same thing, but experience it in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he, introduces that Mrs. Duke is the owner of this boarding house, but she is pretty much a non-character or like a non-player in this in this chapter. And 
in life, it would seem. He describes her as too soft to be hurt, always smiling vaguely. And, you know, this is actually the character that I understand the least from this chapter. I couldn't really grasp what he was trying to express here. I don't know if you had a better idea of who this woman was. I feel like she seems like from that description, um, I thought of her as a character who was always just sort of smiling and nodding vaguely like oh yes nice to meet you hello you know just very like kind of polite and like whatever but unaffected and on does it mean that she doesn't like, really invest herself in yeah it much? seems as if she almost lives in her own world like she's not okay. really sort of aware of the people around her doesn't really form relationships with them just yeah. sort of nods her head and smiles and goes about her day and does her things it- i thought of her as this sort of older woman i guess he may describe yeah. her that way later but as almost like a statue in the house, like she's mm. there and everyone's aware of her, but they're not really like in relationship with her, you know? It, she sort of reminded me of some of those Victorian characters from literature who is, you know, sniffling and, and mm-hmm. laying back on the chaise <laughs> on the and chaise having lounge, yeah. some opiates <laughs> while she's going about her day and kind of ignoring her family. Mm-hmm. Um, so She seemed Mrs- like she wasn't one to draw attention to herself much, though. You know, true, true. And so. I'm, and we'll see if we get a better understanding of her as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. So then um, we meet five young people who are first in the garden and then quickly are split into two and three. Um, Diana Duke and Rosamund Hunt are the two ladies in this group, and they are the ones that travel inside quickly because as Chesterton describes, they look like broken flowers in the wind. Um, the wind is blowing their hats too much. And so these two ladies make a break for the house. And their conversation is the first conversation that we are privy to in this book. What were your impressions of Diana Duke and Rosamond Hunt? <laughs> so they seem to be total opposites in temperament. Diana Duke is the daughter, daughter, niece, niece of mrs duke the landlady yeah and she it says that she's actually the one that really runs the house and actually like holds things together and Mm -hmm. whatever but she seems very cold and stale but like very sharp and like i don't know like she's just capable but right like she's kind of pushing everything and everyone away because she wants to be you know i don't know successful or important or something and and then there's rosamund Hunt, who seems to be a little bit frivolous, it says she plays the mandolin and she likes to act and she seems kind of almost ditzy a little bit, like the in the way yes. that she is reacting to the wind. She's almost sort of delighted by it. And Diana finds that annoying and yes. just kind of pushes her away. So we've talked previously. And as we're jumping into talking about these characters, I want to just briefly mention this again. We've talked previously about how Chesterton sort of writes himself into all of his characters at least a little bit of himself right and I really see him in Rosamund Hunt yeah (laughs) um, because he loves theater and he loves silliness and he loves music and all of that and so I I sort of um recognized him in her character um I love the exchange that these two women have in the house because uh I don't know Grace, actually, is it Rosamond or Rosamond? I don't know how to say. I've always name. said Rosamond. That's what Rosamond. the the audiobook says. But okay, I'm gonna say, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna say that. So Rosamond says, you know, this wind is enough to blow your head off, and Diana's just ignoring her completely, <laughs> and she's like, let me repeat for my audience 
Yeah. And says it again. And then Diana, you know, basically says something about how you think your hats are, you know, so important and it's really very silly. And anyway, they have this conversation that's not really a conversation. It's an attempt for Rosamond to, you know, say something pleasant and make a connection with Diana and it's completely shut down. He goes into descriptions of them after and we we've talked a little bit about what Rosamond was like, but Diana, there's this sort of chilling line to me and I'm curious to see what this turns into eventually mm-hmm. but he says that the silent violence of her slim hands um already like already achieved what needed to be done yeah and that's a very creepy description <laughs> yeah I'm thinking of like spindly like yeah <laughs> witch hands or something wrenching something (laughs) apart or like wringing a chicken's neck or something Mm -hmm. it says that everything that needs to get done she gets it done before the -hmm. professionals can do it It, even pulling a tooth it said at one point I loved it how it says right after that it says she was light but there was nothing leaping about her lightness she spurned the ground and she meant to spurn it Like, it's just, it's like, she's got this slim, light frame, you know, of a woman, but she is like sharp. I don't know. Sharp is the only word that comes to my mind. Like that idea of violence. And it makes me um, wonder what kind of a woman this is. Yeah. Was she hurt by something? Is she overwhelmed by the, the task of running this boarding house? Is she not, has she not been given the opportunity to like flourish in her womanhood? Um, Was she thrust into responsibility? Because it talks about how this isn't a particularly nice area of London and this isn't a particularly nice boarding house. And it's basically by her scraping efforts that she's continued to keep a clientele um, at the boarding Mm -hmm. house. And most of the characters we meet today were invited by each other. And so they're not even all boarders at this house. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems like a big responsibility to me. And yeah, that's a good point. If it's their livelihood, if that's how they're continuing to live, I could see how that could cause a lot of pressure. But, mm-hmm. oh, Diana, I want to see you change over the course <laughs> of this book. Um, so what do you think Chesterton thinks about womanhood and femininity? Oh, gosh. After meeting these characters. Yeah, I. it's hard. It's difficult for me to say. And I think when I first read this book, it's, it's hard for me to talk about it now because I've read it a couple times all the way through. So I kind of see more than just this chapter. Um, I'm also thinking because of having freshly read the woman who was Chesterton and knowing his relationship with his wife. Um, yes. Like <laughs> it's hard to like kind of not think about that, you know, I as well. Give your answer based on all of that. I mean, um, I'm curious in general what your thoughts were about this. Yeah, I think he we all are people of our times, you know? Um, and I think that he kind of had an idea that maybe today might sound weird to us. Um, but at the same time, there were, there was this beautiful understanding that I think he had because of Francis, because of his wife, um, of the power and, um, beauty of a woman's ability to nurture people in life Mm. and um, to kind of bring people alive and allow people to flourish and to introduce, we talked about this before, to introduce people to whole worlds at once. Um, 
and he saw that in his own wife, which was really interesting because they didn't have children of their own. But all throughout that book that I've been reading, it's it's really apparent how much they cared for so many other children in their lives and Mm -hmm. also not just children, but adults. I mean, and her caring for him like a child, (laughs) really, you know, he was sort of like this big child and, um, and he, you know, loved her so well. It wasn't as if he was absent or dismissive of her in any way. Like they were definitely so, so close and he loved her so well. Um, but her sort of motherly instinct of caring for him and keeping him all together when he was falling apart and, you know, all these things, I think he sees that. And, but he also sees the sort of bright beauty of women, um, as like this refreshing, I don't know, just like, like you would see a flower in a place where everything else seems dead, you know, and it's like, you see this flower and it's bright and it's beautiful and it's glorious and he exalts in that. And I think he sees women that way. I don't know if that's making any sense, but this is off the top of my head. Definitely. (laughs) I think that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I didn't give Grace that question beforehand. So she just just rambled there, reached in her mind for, for what she thought, but no, I, I agree. I think he had a great admiration for women. And I think he thought that they were absolutely crucial mm-hmm. in society and family, um, in friendship. And I think that obviously everything he thinks about women is not contained in this book. But I was mm-hmm. I, I, it just started the question for me in my mind because it's clear that he thinks that the severity and the the really the loneliness mm-hmm. of Diana Duke is not what it's women not were good. made for. Right. And it's not necessarily that she works hard. It's not it's not any of that. It's the mm-hmm. attitude with which she views life mm-hmm. and the way that she makes herself alone. When women, they love to love their families and they love to take care of people and they love to be in community. Um, mm-hmm. And men love that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we were made for community. Yeah. And I think he has a similar critique of Dr. Warner, who we'll discuss in a minute, like he who seems to be this bright, young, you know, good looking, intelligent person. But yet he is sort of dead inside, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's a similar critique against him that and against Diana, even in his manhood, is not living it the way that he could be living it, you know. And I think if you read Chesterton without really knowing the story of his life, I think it's so important to read the story of his life and Francis's life together, because I think you sort of see his writings in context, especially about women, Mm -hmm. because I could see people reading some of his works today and kind of getting the wrong impression of what he thinks about women based on our idea of women and society and working and things like that today. Yeah. But if you look at the life of his wife um, and their life together, you see that it it was like she was working, she was writing, she was running things, she was absolutely, you know, doing all she this was stuff. Well and traveled he, just like he was. Oh yeah, was, and and she was in this like artsy, like kind of avant garde society. She ran a debating club. She did like yeah. all these things that were very seen as like intellectual work. And he had immense respect for her and her intellectual opinions, and they influenced him and in his writing. Yeah. And it wasn't as if he was like. He you wasn't know. withholding her from the world. Right. Yeah, from exactly. Doing what she loved to do. Right. Yeah. So, okay. She, she found this calling of kind of supporting his genius, but also like yeah. hers was very much intermingled like within that. So anyways, I just want to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Okay. So then let's cut to the next scene, which is 
uh, we meet all of the men who are in the garden. So we are left with three characters out there. And I love this because he doesn't describe them at first by who they are. He describes them first by their hats or lack of hat. Oh, yeah. And that's funny. I like so that. he says there was a silk hat, a straw hat, and then um, no hat. a person who had no hat. And um, and then we meet our our male characters um, from this chapter. So first we meet Dr. Warner, who, as Grace said, is sort of an interesting character because he doesn't really seem to be living life correctly. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is something seems to be missing from his life and something is really missing from the lives of all of these characters as we meet them. But yeah, I feel like for him though, you said like, he's not living his life correctly. I think according to the world standards, he's living his life completely correctly and he's doing everything that he needs to be doing. And yet there's this emptiness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's a successful doctor. He's written an article that, or a you know, a scientific journal article, I think, about pain in the lower organisms, like proving that lower organisms feel pain. And there's this great line where it says he was no fool. He had brains, but it wasn't his fault if they were the kind of brains that most men desire to analyze with a poker. <laughs> um, and I think what he's getting at here are a couple of things. One was that this was one of the times where um and Grace, you may have found this in your reading as well, but animal activism was really taking off during Chesterton's life. Mm-hmm. And Chesterton didn't like it because he didn't feel like enough was being done for human beings. Ah, yeah. And that there was this absurd focus on pets and animals that was not being given equally or great at a greater level mm-hmm. to human beings. And he actually said that a society that adores and worships their pets in the way that they do are certain to kill their children <laughs> wow and that is That's like profound way yeah he was like way ahead of his right. time on that that it's a very prophetic statement because mm-hmm. in the world I think I don't I don't even know how many abortions have been performed in the last year but it's mm-hmm. definitely in the millions and we have people who dress their dogs up in clothes and not that that's the end of the world. I'm not, no, I'm not like, hating I, on you if you love your pets. <laughs> yeah, same, same. No, I love dogs and cats and pets and everything, you know, but I think there's something real about that. And I think it's true of anything that anything in this world that we end up putting above or maybe I should say out of the order in which God intended us to use things. Right. So God created pets, right? Like he created dogs and cats to be, you know, man's best friend. And he knew we would enjoy them. He knew we would enjoy them and he wanted us to enjoy them. And if we see through Chesterton's lens, we're seeing that everything in the world, as I mentioned before, is a wedding gift to his beloved. Right. So God has created everything for us, including pets. But the same thing happens even with people where when we make another person a God, right? Mm. There's a distortion. There's a twisting of the relationship that ends up in bad things rather than good things. So it's like everything in the proper order. And I think Chesterton saw that there was a sort of disorder in the way that people were focusing on pets to the expense of the people right in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. You hit that. You hit that right on the head. That's that's what I was trying to express that I mean, I have a dog and I adore her, but <laughs> I, it, she doesn't come before my family. She doesn't right. come before God. Anyway, so I think this is one of the problems that he's drawing our attention to with this particular article that this That's guy has written. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. 
But I also think that he's trying to express that this is just something that many people would not be interested in hearing about. (laughs) And I think that it gets to the, the core of this, which is that Chesterton is very relational, which we Mm -hmm. saw in Father Brown. We've seen in other characters and in other books we've read by him, Mm -hmm. he loves people and he's very relational. And he sees that Dr. Warner is missing this he's Mm. like missing that connection to people that he finds to be so crucial to human beings to the makeup of a human being and back to diana duke i think that's her problem as well you know it's like she's very she's successful in a certain sense she's very orderly she's on top of her stuff like she's getting things done she's accomplishing things she's this modern woman who is you know doing things but she's missing that aspect as well that's why i think the two of them are similar in that way yeah So then um, after meeting Dr. Warner, who is handsome, but kind of bland and kind of boring, we move on (laughs) to Arthur Inglewood, who worships Warner. Mm -hmm. Um, He was invited by him to come to the boarding house um, to spend time. Uh, And I find the the description of Arthur Inglewood kind of sad, maybe because it it resounds in me. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I might cut this out. He's good looking and insignificant (laughs) at the same time. He's moral, intelligent, a photographer, a cyclist, but people knew him and forgot him. Mm. And maybe this is more people than we'd like to admit. Oh, I think a lot of us could probably feel as if we relate to this character. You know, I think a lot of people will see, you know, they can see the beauty in themselves, but they also are insecure. They have a lot of cool things about them, but nobody really takes notice because it's nothing that's flashy or, you know, super, you know, over the top. Um, Like this Dr. Warner character has this, you know, medical career that like people who are intelligent think is important and you know all this yeah. stuff but then you have Arthur who seems like a great guy you know but yeah. he's I'm like man he sounds like the yeah. kind of guy we would like marry <laughs> right or like or, hang out with or yeah, you know whatever with. Yeah. exactly and like I think all of us can kind of feel especially and and Chesterton wasn't even writing in a day of social media but I feel like today it's very easy to feel that way. You know, everybody else seems to have their perfect Instagram mm-hmm. posts and everything and and they have this very exciting life and whatever. And we're sitting here yes. and we feel a little bit unnoticed and, you know, that, yes. I don't know. Like, I think that's that's something that everybody in some way could probably relate to. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great observation. And I think there's possibly not really anything wrong with him. I think some people are not the center of attention everywhere they go mm-hmm. and that's okay like yeah some people don't want to be the center of attention everywhere they go and some people don't put an effort to be the center of attention but like clearly some people they're going to be the center of attention they just they command the attention of the room and right um i don't know i think it's an interesting contrast that arthur was the one who was friends with innocent smith in college Mm. right right which which makes me believe that he saw goodness and and excitement in arthur because he chose to be Mm -hmm. friends with him so anyway we'll we'll get to that as we continue on okay last we meet michael moon and then through michael moon we meet um a character who is not overly important but you know sort of builds our view of um michael moon who is uh moses gold So Michael Moon is an Irishman 
And once a, once again, we get this kind of like long, dark description of an Irishman, which we have encountered in many other stories. Michael Moon is my favorite character in this yeah. book. <laughs> he I is. Him. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Um, yeah. He describes him as having blue Irish eyes, a uh, blue chin, so unshaven. And he's an obscure and flippant journalist. He's smoking a pipe. He has no hat. And he enjoys company because company is quieter than society, which I love that. Yeah, I love that line, um, too. He's an intellectual without ambition. And I understand this, too. Yeah. Um, like I have so a particular just- friend that he reminds me of. And so I'm just seeing it very clearly. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So an interesting point here in Night of the Holy Ghost, which is a book written by Dale Alquist about Chesterton. He addresses um, the fact that certain people have accused Chesterton of being Mm. Mm anti-Semitic, which is not a claim that I've found to be true in reading Mm -hmm. his books and reading about him. I just I find it to be false. Um, I think he has a style of talking about not just Jews, but a lot of other cultures that today's society would find, you know, flippant or hateful or something but in his time maybe wouldn't have been considered that way like I don't think Chesterton when you read how he thinks about humanity I don't think you could think that he somehow was thinking of another group of people as less than human because he's just such a humanitarian in a certain way you know I think absolutely um it's hard for me in reading a lot of his other works to think that he meant anything by what he says in these stories you know our world is incredibly sensitive today Mm -hmm. too sensitive I mean we I I find myself checking myself to make sure what I'm saying is not going to offend somebody Mm -hmm. but sometimes you need to you need to just say things and people need to have a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing that you have to keep in mind when you read Chesterton, especially in his fiction, is his humor. He was a very humorous person and yeah. he was always poking fun at people and to their faces. You know what I mean? It's not as if he was talking about people behind their backs like he was so open. I just think about Shaw, you know, and his relationship yeah. with Shaw and the two of them disagreeing on a lot of things and him making fun of Shaw and Shaw making fun of him. And it was just yes. all like jest, you know. And that happened with lots of his friends. Um mm-hmm. I bring this up because Moses Gold, the character who hangs around with Michael Moon, it says um, much of the time, is a Jewish person. And the description of Moses is thus. Um, He was a Jew who lived in Michael Moon's boarding house, whose vitality and vulgarity amused Michael so much that he went round with him from bar to bar like the owner of a performing monkey. Um, Now, let me break this down for you as a person who's married to an English person, (laughs) to an English man. Yeah. English people find people who are louder and more energetic to be entertaining. And I know this because I am this performing monkey, (laughs) I I think, for (laughs) some English people, Um, meaning that (sighs) he's talking about vitality and vulgarity and Vulgarity doesn't mean, I think, at this time, what it means for us today. Like when right. we say something's vulgar today, we mean it's like disgusting and yeah. shouldn't like if we say it in regards to a film, we say that um, it's just in bad taste. Right. But 
this word meant unrefined. Yeah. So this was a person who had lots of energy, who wasn't really tied into all of like the these social responsibilities that yeah. English people felt themselves the kind of like polite bound society to. stuff. Yes. Yeah. And that's why he was saying that company was more comfortable than society because in society you had to behave in a certain way and you had right. to keep things at a certain volume. And if you've read um Watching the English, which is a fantastic book. It's a book of observations about English people. Oh, wow. Um, there's a primness and a properness. And don't get me wrong. They also have a great sense of humor. It's very mm-hmm. dry. But there's nothing wrong with him admiring in this other character the energy that he has and the the fact that he is not tied to these social norms in this country. Um, so anyway, I think he thinks he's fun. And so he hangs around with him. And I I just wanted to clarify that because I think that somebody reading that could think, oh, maybe he is anti-Semitic. Right. Yeah. But he's he's drawing our attention to the differences between Mm -hmm. between people. He was good at observing the differences between people. Okay, so we observe a conversation between the gentleman, which is as seemingly silly as the conversation between the two girls. As they're talking in the garden, a hat flies over into the garden, over the wall into the garden, and it's a Panama hat, as Grace noted earlier in our summary. And a man bounds in behind it, wearing green. He's got blonde hair, a cherubic face, but not in the sense of being without a body. This made me think of all of those icons of angels where yeah, it's just, just the head and the, and the wings are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And He's huge, he's athletic, he's bounding, he comes into the garden, and one of the gentlemen is about to, perhaps Warner, I think, is about to pick up the hat for him and hand it back to him, and he yells out, unsportsmanlike! Give it... (laughs) Give it, give, fair it fair play. Play. <laughs> give it fair play. That reminded ju- me of Father Brown. Um, whenever I was reading about how Chesterton wanted to wanted fair play for the reader, you know, he wanted the reader to be able to figure out on their own like what was happening in the mystery. Yes. Um, and it just reminded me of that, like just in life, that he he's like, no, this is this is a game. This is a like I yeah. want you to play it. Like I don't want to ruin it for you. You know, <laughs> which is. He's so much like a child, mm-hmm. Chesterton and this character, mm-hmm. um, because kids are very, very, they have very strong feelings about how games should be played and that right. people are following the rules. And if there's a change in the rules, everyone must know about it. And so mm-hmm. anyway, he comes in and he doesn't want the hat to just be handed to him. Chesterton has written this hat as an anthropomorphic character who's come to life along with the wind. So these two characters, the wind and the hat, are are working to uh, escape Innocent Smith. And so he eventually catches the hat with his feet, which is just a hilarious image. And this is his introduction to these other characters. Um, There's a great line. A few minutes later, uh, Warner's hat flies off of his head and it Mm. it flies up into the tree in the garden. It says the tree had been there for the five years they had known the boarding house. Each one was strong and active. Not one of them had even thought of climbing it. Mm. And I love that so much because Innocent Smith bounds up the tree, captures the hat like he's, you know, a 
I don't know. He's he like, doesn't even have to think about it. He just does it. You know, yeah. it's not even like he stands and considers like, hmm, could I climb that tree? Would I break yeah. my leg? I don't know. <laughs> he just does yeah. it. And he's so passionate about what he's doing that he actually kind of ruins the hat. You know, it's a silk hat, I think. Is mm-hmm. he the one who has a silk yeah, hat? Yeah, yeah, it's the silk hat. And it's like a big so top hat, I think. He damages it, puts it back on his head, and Warner is kind of like, oh, I don't want this back now. This is just such an interesting scene because Innocent Smith is showing us how exciting and creative life can be. Even just the act of losing a hat and then catching it again. Mm -hmm. And these guys are just completely flummoxed. Right. What is he doing? Don't know how to handle it. He's a madman. I loved the part where it talked about Michael. And this is this is what I like about Michael. And we'll see this more as the as the time goes on but it says oh this is right after when he's still when innocent smith is still chasing his hat it says michael found to his incredulous surprise that he had been holding his breath like a man watching a duel (laughs) that he was like he wasn't thinking that he was going to be caught up in this whole thing but he's like watching with bated breath like what's gonna happen you know and um it's it just kind of like drawn up into this game you know and he, uh, Michael is the same one, right, who almost quotes Shakespeare yeah. as he's watching. It says yeah. he almost quotes Shakespeare about Hercules as he's watching him climb up the tree. He's bringing something out in each of mm-hmm. these men just by yeah. his presence and like his actions near them. When he puts the hat on Warner's head, he says, every man a king, every hat a crown, but this is a crown out of heaven. And I think it just like ties together all of this really otherworldly imagery that we're seeing in this like right wind holy spirit angels Mm -hmm. all of this all of this is coming together and it's as if innocent smith is seeing a world other than what these men are seeing right i think that that scene of him he's he's actually hanging from the tree by his legs backwards he's like hanging down Yes. And he has the hat in his hands and he places it on Warner's head like a crown from like this tree. And so just like the image of that is so crazy. But he I think it's one of the most profound things in this chapter um, because I think there's so much imagery and so much um, reality of like our humanity. Chesterton, being a Christian, you know, sees the fact that we have been crowned with divinity right like that god has become man that he has this perfect plan for our lives like he wants to to draw us up out of brokenness and into this fullness of life um and so we often though don't see the crown that we've received right like god wants to give us this heavenly crown and like we don't see it like we don't understand that we are meant for that greatness you know we we settle for the lower mediocre things of life and high society and you know whatever else and it's like all the things that the world has to offer and God's like no I want to give you more like not less than that but more than that and we just don't see it and it's interesting how Warner responds to Smith putting the hat on his head like a crown and saying all these silly things it says again he attempted the coronation of Warner who however moved away with great abruptness from the Mm -hmm. hovering diadem not seeming strangely enough to wish for his former decoration in its present state and then he yells out wrong wrong always wear uniform even if it's a shabby uniform (laughs) and he like goes on (laughs) about like rituals and uniforms and all these things but he's this child like trying to point out something of reality maybe to Warner that Warner is like 
just taken aback by he like he's like I and he's kind of pushed away by weird yeah lightness right yeah yeah I'm gonna just interject and say what I'm grateful for this week because oh, yeah. it has a connection to the story so for Christmas my brother brought his family into town and I have four almost five um, nieces and nephews in mm-hmm. that family I got the opportunity to spend basically the day at one of the beach parks here with them. And the three oldest were playing with me. They're the ones who can kind of, they get it. The, right. the the fourth one is too young. And there's a big metal whale at the beach. And we were riding this whale and pretending like we were going to other countries and <laughs> running around the playground. And we were like hiding in the bushes. We were in another land. Mm-hmm. We had swords. We found treasure. Um, yeah. It was a blast. And then the kids asked me if they could climb this kind of low hanging tree. And so I was putting them up on the branches and uh-huh. like all of this. And the next day I said to my oldest nephew, Drew, Drew, yesterday was the most fun I've had in a long time. And he said, I'm so glad, you know, um, adults cut themselves off from the fun. Wow. And I, I said, oh, really? He's six. <laughs> yeah, that's so profound. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, that's kind of true. And he said, yeah, they don't let themselves have fun. And I, I just thought like children see they see the world with so so many more joys in it. They see the world with so much creativity and imagination. Yeah, and we would do well to embrace that a little bit more. And I think Chesterton and Francis were able to preserve that childlike joy and imagination in their lives for mm-hmm. their whole lives because yeah. they continued to involve themselves with children right who when you play with them they remind you how fun life can be mm-hmm. and we had nothing we didn't have any props or anything yeah. you were looking at our bare empty hands and imagining all of these great adventures that we were on and I don't know that was great for me a, I needed a fun day. Yeah. What a great stress relief. Absolutely. <laughs> B, it let me into their creativity and just how many wonderful thoughts that they have at such a young age. So I think that that kind of play is shocking to these men from another man, from another Absolutely. grown man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the the part where Innocent Smith says, why don't they make more games out of the wind? Yes. Um, kites are all right, but why should it be only kites? Why I thought of three other games for a windy day while I was climbing that tree. Here's one of them. You take a lot of pepper and then somebody like interjects and like cuts him off. And it's just Chesterton, just like literarily speaking, he does a great job in all of his works, I think, yeah. with setting up something and then cutting off the person. And so you, you, your mind has to go like, what was he going to do with pepper on a windy day? You know, know. it's like, you got to think about it. (laughs) And I love it. Yeah. Yeah, So great. So near the end of this chapter, he says that he's able to accomplish this by having two legs. Yes. And uh, we didn't talk about it earlier, but when um, Inglewood says, he talks about his one friend from college Mm -hmm. um, and how he went completely mad. uh, And he knew this because he received a telegram from him that said, alive with two legs yeah man man found alive with two legs yes man found alive with two legs and he's like he's completely insane yeah so when he says i do it by having two legs they are all kind of shocked into reality and they see him with new eyes yeah yeah inglewood uh recognizes him all of the sudden and 
they were just talking about him a few minutes before and now he's in front of them and you know Inglewood said he had lost his mind and it truly seems like he has lost his mind yeah he's like okay he was right (laughs) what were your thoughts about the the end of this chapter before we wrap up yeah it just kind of continued the the element of fantasy almost seeming like um he says wait I think you're Smith he he like kind of realizes who he is and then he kind of plays along almost and says I have a card I think um and then it says with baffling solemnity so it's like all of a sudden he gets serious you know and he's like a card with my real name my titles offices and true purpose on this earth (laughs) it's like who gives a business card with their true purpose on this earth you know what I mean yeah Uh, written on it but then he goes to hand it and the wind takes it and blows it away Mm -hmm. so you don't know what it says um but it says the strident tearing gale in that garden carried away the stranger's card to join the wild waste paper of the universe. I loved that line, <laughs> the wild waste paper of the universe. But yeah, it just, it was so, it was so whimsical and exciting. Like I yeah. felt like it was kind of a page turner for me um, the first time Ooh. that I read it and uh, I was like, what is happening here? Yeah. So we're going to have to take him at his word that he is who he says he is because his card is gone. Right. And I love that the chapter begins with the wind Mm. bringing him in, blowing him in, Mm. blowing his hat in. And then this chapter ends with uh, his card being blown again away by the wind. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I think we'll end there for today. And next week we're going to be talking about chapter two of Man Alive. And this is just such a fun book. And as Grace said, it really is a page turner. So um, yeah, we're really happy that you're along with us for this journey. Um, for sure. I'd like to do just really quick my gratitude journal because yes. I didn't do that yet. Um, for me, I was just thinking about, I don't know, in Christmas time, there's a lot of lights everywhere. You know, it's kind of it's darker outside and there's all these lights and there's Christmas lights and there's fires in people's homes and there's fire pit gatherings and there's you know all kinds of stuff like that and just light is something that has always been and I'm I'm discovering this more and more um something that connects me I think with the eternal in some mm-hmm. way and in the last year or so I've been reflecting a lot on God as like the uncreated light and like just that imagery um is really profound for me and like means a lot to me and I'm one of these people it was funny when I was reading um the woman who was Chesterton, I related so much to Francis um, on this level because she hated cloudy, rainy days, um, which mm-hmm. Chesterton himself, Gilbert, loved rainy days. And uh, we read that passage before, but she hated them. And I also am not a big fan. I love the sunshine and I want to be in light rooms. I like I'll always come into rooms and in my house and my roommates will be sitting in the dark. And I'm like, you want me to turn on a light? And they're like, oh, whatever. And I'm like, ah, like I need light, you know, You're like, and, let's um, brighten this place. Yeah. Up. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just, the lights at Christmas time, there's just something magical about them. And it just, it lifts me up, you know, it makes me light and just being around, um, being around fires and I don't know, it's just, that was my gratitude. Um, it's just like for light and for the different ways that we experience light. And even in this chapter, there were so many images of the late afternoon light. He said like a sunset at the wrong end of the day. Mm. Um, that his descriptions of 
the weather and the environment were so vivid to me. I feel like I could just see it. You know, like I've experienced a day like that before. There was drab and dreary, and then all of a sudden, right before sunset, the skies lit up sort of gold and yellow and pink. And like there's this wind that picks up and just makes everything come to life. And I feel like that sometimes light and sunshine does that for me as well. So I love that. What a cozy gratitude, uh, a cozy point of gratitude. Beautiful. All right. Well, as I said, next week we're going to be reading chapter two or discussing chapter two, uh, The Luggage of an Optimist. And we really would love if you would join us. You can find us on Instagram at Pints with Chesterton. You can email us at pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. And you can find our website at pintswithchesterton.com. We hope you will continue joining us throughout this entire novel. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.